The Duchess of Sussex? What is that? What is Sussex? Is that like the biggest area in London? Is that like Trafalgar Square? That would totally be my reaction if I were to be Megan. Megan? That would totally be my reaction if I were in Megan's shoes, which luckily I'm not, because Jesus. The pressure. I'd like to be, have the ability to chill. But yeah, I would definitely be questioning that title. And right now I'm going to explain to you why Meghan did get the title of the Duchess of Sussex and how did that all come about. Because after researching Royal Family for about three episodes now, I was like, wait, but where does this come from? It must be like some old customs that people truly shouldn't really be doing in 21st centuries, but they still are. And yes, that is exactly correct. Hi, listen to me. This is Pegle Means Necessary podcast. Listen very carefully. We do things here by all means necessary. And boy, if there has ever been a story that people want it to be untrue, by all means necessary, that is truly the death of Princess Diana. So strap in, strap in wherever you are. If you are in a car, you wear that sealed belt, please. If you learn anything out of this episode, that is the importance of wearing a seat belt. If you are in your chair, boy, your back is going to hurt because this might be the longest one yet. Just, just warning you. I'm recording it partially tonight and partially tomorrow. And me, yes, I'm your host, Maya. Welcome. It's a long podcast episode. and it, I prolonged it even more because of researching into royalty titles and shit. It's easy to find, like, sort of the hierarchy of them. What's harder to find is, like, why are they given these random-ass regions and it's really not as available? It really just depends on the queen. So, let's dive into one of the things first. So let's let's clarify that for myself and the public first, and then we're gonna dive into some conspiracy theories. For the first time, may I add in, like, what is it? Is this gonna be a 50th after? Yeah, for the first time, you know? So we we passed the mark. We passed the 50 mark, which is so fucking weird. But yes, we passed 50 episodes. So, I mean, it's about time. It doesn't really fit the show, but if there's anything that fits the show, it is this case. So, the titles going off on so many tangents, as always. Okay, cool. <laughs> it's like you just witnessed me scold myself. Amazing. Off to a great start. Epic. Perfect. So we still refer to the noble titles of Duke, Duchess, Earl, Countess, and so on, because of the old period system. So this hierarchy exists to kind of give the power to the people that we used to do in the land-owning times. So peers, when it came to the land-owning times, swore loyalty to the queen or the king for exchange of money or land. And then in feudal times, these titles and the jobs that came with them were passed down to male heirs and their spouses. And that is sort of very much applied today. I didn't actually know that you can only get that title and with it its region only once you marry. Because apparently we still live in like 1800s. It's all cool. So you have kings and queens, then dukes and duchesses, then marquises and marchionesses, which I have never heard the female version of that, so that's great. Then earls and countesses, then viscounts and viscountesses. Hope that's how you pronounce them, because I have no clue. And the lowest ranks are barons and baronesses. And if you listen to that minisode, hey, you might still have your chance with, well becoming one of those ranks, and that is life peer. Because in 1958, legislation introduced a new ring on this peerage ladder. This, hey, might get you closer to the royalty, but you need to be appointed by the prime minister first, and then you need to be appointed by the crown. So this 
you might get if you're a prominent doctor, professor, veteran, business owner, and farmer. Apparently, I don't know, it's so much in 2020, but sure. This privilege will give you a nice, comfortable seat in the House of Lords. And in terms of the region, so Diana was Princess of Wales, Prince William is Duke of Cambridge. So if we lived in the old times, that would mean that that person would have inherited the land to go with a title. But these days, obviously, they're just more like honorary. I still couldn't find anywhere why particular ones belong to particular people. It depends on the queen, obviously, which region she gives you, but, like, how does she choose the region? Because, like, when I heard about, you know, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, I was like, why Sussex? Like, are we out of everything? Like, we have the Duke of Edinburgh, that's Philip. We have the Cambridge, which is Kate and William, but, like, there's other things. We had Wales. Like, how do you choose? How do you pick and choose? What does it all mean? Yeah, that's the one thing which still bothers me. Royalty, contact me. So the thought process was Harry could have been Duke of Sussex, Windsor, or Clarence. Where the fuck is Clarence? So have I clarified anything for you? Probably not. Sort of. Like 10% of the whole topic? Yeah, I couldn't find stuff on this. But you know what I could find stuff of? What I could find? <laughs> Documents of over 800 pages on. Yeah. Princess Wales, Diana, we're diving, we're diving in. We're going into this motherfucker. It's gonna break your heart? Listen to me. <laughs> Stop it. If I don't end up crying, this is why I'm doing it in two days, because this is how heavy this is. It might destroy you. I'm not gonna lie to you. If you don't know plenty of details about this story, it might destroy you. And I have kind of taken a lot of different angles from any other podcast that I have listened to cover this story. Still focusing on a couple of main conspiracy theories. But yeah, also focusing on the official document that exists out there that I have read a good chunk of. That's the inquest that the British have opened on this case. As mentioned, this podcast doesn't really focus on conspiracy theories. And that's truly because there are only a few conspiracy theories that are really fitting into the by all means necessary model. And those on top of my head would really be the JFK assassination and the Princess Diana accident. Because in those two, people truly don't believe the outcome. No matter what you give them, no matter how many inquests you do into those deaths, people will still rather have an alternative answer. And we'll speak about that. We'll obviously speak about the motives and why do all of these conspiracy theories emerge in this particular case, but just in general as well. But for now, strap in. We are taking the fuck off. 23 years after the car crash that resulted in her death, people all over the world believe that this death was declared accidental by all means necessary. Multiple conspiracy theories have stemmed from the event, with millions still disagreeing with the official conclusions given to the public. This is the story of Princess Diana. Throws me off balance. Always throws me off a balance. Of balance. Okay. 
We are kicking it off with the accident that took place in Paris on August 31st, 1997. Just a note, I'm not doing the usual putting you into the shoes of people, mostly in this story because I'm not a complete psychopath, because three out of four people have died in the crash, and the fourth one doesn't have the memory of the last couple of minutes of the crash. So, uh, yeah, I'm not gonna do that to anybody for you to visualize it from somebody else's perspective. It's just narration of the story today. We are picking up from the moment in Princess Diana's life when she was already dating Dodi Fayed in 1997. At this moment, she was already divorced from Prince Charles and she was kind of building her own legacy separate from the royal family. So in 1997, her and Dodi Fayed, his dad owns Harrods, so yeah, they're rich. They were traveling south of France, where obviously paparazzi got onto it, started following them immediately, and then followed them all the way from the south of friends to Paris. So Dottie had this idea that they should go to Paris for like at least one day, sort of just again to, well, see Paris, but also to avert the paparazzi. But he has kind of spotted them at the Ritz, like where they were dining, and had this idea of kind of like going through a back door, jumping into the car, and taking like a different route to, to a hotel where they were staying. So, Diana, Dodie, Henry Paul, or, well, okay, pronounce that in French, Henry or something, who was the driver, and her bodyguard, Travis Reese Jones, all went out the back exit to avoid the paparazzi and went into the car. So, all of them went into this Mercedes and were going for the hotel. I'll break down, like, every single one of these pathways later. But, let's just say, they were going through a tunnel, through this Alma underpass, taking her out to the hotel where they were staying. What we know next is that this Mercedes crashed directly into the 13th pillar in this tunnel, that it spun around and came completely crashed. The car was destroyed, if you see any of these pictures, but was facing the complete opposite direction than the one that they were going towards. Now, these paparazzi that were actually following them on the motorbikes, some one of them ends up calling the ambulance, calling the police, and once they arrive, they they pronounced Henry and uh, Dodi Alfayette dead on the scene. Diana was still alive, but she was barely conscious, and then they transported to the hospital as well as her bodyguard. Again here, just as I mentioned, giving you the rough outline of events, Princess of Wales and Dodi Fayed were sent to England later that day. However, Diana was sent to England embalmed. And that, again, will become controversial and relevant later on in the episode. So now they were sent to Hammersmith and Fulham Mortuary to be examined, and Diana's cause of death was attributed to the catastrophic injuries sustained in her crash. Henry Paul, because he was French, actually remained in Paris, and his cause of death was attributed to the injuries again sustained in the crash. His autopsy and all of those reports will again become relevant later, mostly due to the toxicological analysis, because obviously he was a driver and everybody looked closely into what might have caused the crash? Like, was he the one responsible? Right after this accident, immediately a few things took the wheel. The media, obviously, everybody in the UK was mourning Princess Diana's death. That is from what people have seen. Everybody but the Queen herself, because she waited about five days to give the statement. However, obviously, when she came out on September the 5th, she kind of said, like, that, well, she had her reasons. No one who knew Diana will ever forget her. 
Millions of others who never met her but felt they knew her will remember her. I, for one, believe there are lessons to be drawn from her life and um, and from the extraordinary and moving reaction to her death. I share in your determination to cherish her memory. But she has said, like, please respect her children, who were Harry and William, who were really quite little at the time, mourning her death, so sort of giving that as an excuse of why she didn't come to give the statement to the public earlier on. And so to as this, like, cause of other reactive things happening, immediately Dottie Fayette's father started his own investigation, started the legal submissions to both the British government and the French one, investigating this as whether this was a conspiracy of murder committed towards Diana, but also his son. And the French investigator, Judge Hervé Stéphane, concluded that the paparazzi who were following Diana and Dodi at that time were some distance from the Mercedes and were not responsible. And here, what becomes prevalent really quickly is that everybody's trying to protect their own, obviously. The French people are saying, like, hey, look, we are not responsible, it's just our paparazzi, they're just doing their job. And obviously, they're going to try to say, like, hey, the driver wasn't actually responsible because, well, he's one of us. The British are going to be like, what conspiracy? We haven't done anything here. And then you have Diana's family and Dodi Fayed's family who want somebody to be held responsible for this because, well, both of their own died in that accident. We now need to talk about Operation Paget because it's going to become prevalent when it comes to different conclusions and I'm going to kind of like draw on on it when I speak about the conspiracy theories. So Operation Paget is this huge document that I have read a good chunk of even though it is about 831 pages. So that was wonderful. I have also discovered it on like the last day that it's actually publicly online of research. So that was again great. It has about 16 chapters. And what surprised me about it is that it was actually really easy to understand. I thought, like, when I first saw it, I was like, this is going to be some legal terminology. I might not be able to, like, even get it. But it is quite literally breaking down, like, every conspiracy theory somebody might have had and every angle people might have had. Then having, like, different parts of the interviews of anybody involved. And then every of those 16 chapters focusing on the actual interviews, on the actual evidence, and then making their conclusions. And this was actually initiated by the coroner in the UK, which again speculated a lot of things, like why is the British coroner wanting these answers? But then if you look at it from the other perspective, it is to basically shut everybody up and kind of defend the British royalty in this case. So Operation Paget concluded that the driver, Henry Paul, who was killed, was drunk and driving at excessive speed. He had the alcohol level of about 1.74 grams per liter at the time of the crash, about the twice of the British drink drive limit. The Mercedes was also driven at about 61 to 63 miles per hour, which was twice at the speed limit for that section of the road. And Lord Stevens concluded that uh, with the, all the evidence available at this time, there was no conspiracy to murder any of the occupants of the car. This was a tragic accident. There was no conspiracy and there was no cover-up. What it introduced, well, or rather confirmed, 
um, in one of those chapters is the presence of the white Fiat Uno, so like another car, and how the collision actually started even before those two cars went into the tunnel. This car has never been found, the lock, and the driver of the white Fiat Uno was never located. It's more like what they found on the car, so like more like paint of the white Fiat Uno. So Operation Paget concluded that the driver, Henry Paul, saw this Fiat Uno approaching and therefore like thought like he needs to take action. But by the time the Mercedes approached the 13th pillar, the result was inevitable and the Mercedes would collide into the pillar, like as in they couldn't avoid this car, whoever was driving it. So the main points to take from the Operation Paget, even though I'm going to come through like different parts that correspond to different theories, is that there was no establishment of conspiracy specifically by MI6 to murder Diana, Princess of Wales, that the forensics on the princess's blood showed no trace of pregnancy hormones. There's about like 45 pages that I skimmed through, which kind of gave some evidence that maybe Dolly was planning to propose, but preliminary suggested that, well, she wasn't really intending to marry him and he might have only bought the ring but still didn't like resize him and there was no planning like, yeah, he was going to propose then and there. However, what Operation Paget still left unanswered is about like a million questions. And I'm not sure if I mentioned, but the report came out in 2006. So some of those questions... Who was driving the Fiat Uno? Where the hell is this driver? Why don't we have, like, the full CCTV reconstruction of events? There was never 100% confirmation of what happened to Henry Paul's blood samples, which again allowed for ton of speculations. And his blood samples varied from, like, the first time that they were taken to the second time that they have been taken. Again, what caused the ton of speculations was, was Dodi Fayed about to propose? Was there an actual physical ring? So many witnesses. Literally, whoever wanted to give a witness statement during this time was just like, yep, giving the chance. It's like, yep, have it. Have 841 pages to fill. Take it. Take the wheel. Another thing that I will not focus as much, but a lot of people take this angle when they're looking at particular conspiracies around her death, and that is that Diana's butler, poor Burrell, actually said that she wrote a letter. Well, apparently she wrote a letter kind of predicting her own death, which is eerie in itself. It's just like when I say that I don't think I'm going to live a long life and everybody's like, <laughs> stop it, what are you saying? I'm like, but I really can't. I cannot even visualize myself at like the age of 60. I just can't. And I'm fine with it. Listen, I'm fine. I hope it's not like this morbid and painful and you don't have like 20 conspiracy theories. I also hope it's not like death by a scooter, but sure. So the butler said that she actually also wrote him a letter claiming that Prince Charles might be actually planning an accident in her car so that he could marry sooner. And he said the princess did name a woman in her note, and it wasn't Camilla Parker Bowles, who Charles was already having an affair throughout the whole marriage with Diana, and who kind of, well, now he had a sort of open pathway towards. And the butler said that the Operation Paget knows the identity of the woman named, but that they never revealed it. So again, they haven't really answered all of the public questions, even though that many pages, even though 16 chapters. Hence, even though when it was released, Mohammed Al-Fayed, Dotty Fayed's dad, wasn't really satisfied. So in 2007, he submitted another inquest. And this was when the deputy coroner of the Queen's household decided to grant access to the evidence collected by the criminal investigation to his lawyers. 
So they disclosed to his legal teams about 11,000 pages, more than 1,500 photographs, several DVDs, large size plans, and just other data. And this is when, finally, in April 2008, with the inquest jury of the Royal Courts of Justice in London, they gave the verdict of unlawful killing for both Princess and the boyfriend Dodi, which was the equivalent of a manslaughter in criminal court. And they said that it was a mix of the paparazzi and Henry Paul, that the crash was caused because of the gross negligence. And the jury also concluded that the couple might have lived had they worn seat belts. And after this inquest and after the verdict in 2008, Mohammed Al-Fayed finally accepted the jury's verdict and um, accepted that the crash was the accident caused by the drivers and uh, by the driver and the paparazzi. He said he's going to drop his conspiracy campaign out of respect for Harry and William. He said, quote, I'm leaving the rest for God to get my revenge, but I'm not doing anything anymore, end quote. Which again to me sounds like he still isn't buying it, but finally there's somebody to blame. And that is a lot of people's opinions, to be honest. So I put in the next slide, my personal opinion is that they had to find a scapegoat. And as we have all watched, again, another generalization, as we have all watched how to get away with murder or just scandal or like anything else, but mostly how to get away with murder, it's easy to blame a dead man, isn't it? First of all, the number one rule is never blame yourself. Like, duh, that would be dumb. Like, you'd be in prison, (laughs) even if you are part of a conspiracy to murder somebody. Then when you pass the blame onto somebody, I mean, morally... It's more wrong to pass it on to somebody alive and then somebody is wrongfully in prison. So, if you are buying into any of the conspiracy theories, then it's easy. You find somebody, you give a scapegoat, and then people are obviously gonna buy it. They finally have somebody to blame. They might shut up and let you live in peace. And you just move on with your life. And that dead man will haunt you. Trust me on that. (laughs) Trust me on that. And Paul is haunting them all from the dead. And he is French, so it's probably aggressive. Some aggressive-ass ghost. (laughs) But now the royalty has done their inquest. They have claimed they finally put the blame on somebody. The public has finally somebody to blame. So why do all of these conspiracy theories on Princess Diana still continue to exist? For that, we gotta dive into the timeline of events and truly take them all apart and see what Operation Pageant gave us answers to and what questions still remain unanswered. And it's truly in those unanswered questions that that the answer to the question of why do these conspiracy theories continue to exist lies. Yeah. So now in real life, I'm gonna pick up on this. I'm gonna charge the battery, charge my own batteries, Go to sleep, wake up tomorrow, and continue recording tomorrow. So if you're watching on YouTube, which I highly recommend because there's visuals, you might see like a light, a bright setting instead of like this dark one. But in your real life of listening experience, it's going to happen in about 10 seconds when we dive into the postmath of the accident in Paris. It's the morning here now, yes. I'm looping into the, the realistic time when I'm recording it. And the best paradox out of all of that is that I have just had the citizenship ceremonies. I'm gonna actually get the British passport and everything by... Not by the time this is released, probably like January and... Or knowing the fucking Covid stuff. Maybe even February. But hey, I just thought that I was (laughs) on brand with this story. Somebody just really didn't feed the royal family and here I am telling you about royalty the whole month while becoming a British citizenship. 
Yes, so much respect to the majesty. Okay, first conspiracy. Before going into discussing the postmap of the accident, let's go in sequence here and discuss, well, where the conspiracy is really started. And that is before the accident, because of the lack of CCTV images. So everybody criticized the French for this, like, why? Why do we have just eyewitness testimonies here? And Mr. Fayette stated in 2003 that there were about 10 video cameras on the route taken by the Mercedes, including one on the entrance to the tunnel itself. But there are no recordings from any of these for the night in question. Again, they were like, ah, they just were there for show, they weren't working. Which is bad enough when it happens, like, in shops where, like, a crime is committed. (laughs) This is a road. This is cars. It's not like somebody might pick a pocket at a shop. It's tunnels. It's one of my many, many paranoias going through a freaking tunnel. Not because of this, but right now, yes, it is because of this. It's too dark. What is happening? Is there a camera? Like, somebody might come, like, from any, each direction. The Independent also stated in 2006 that there were more than 14 CCTV cameras, but none recorded footage of fatal collision. And because of when it was, or just again, because it is different country, it is different procedures, the officers from the police would be able to continue to view the pictures shown by the traffic camera in real time, but can't control it. So they like can't go back to it, can't replay it. So what is the fucking purpose of it? So there would be no reason for those in the overnight control room in Paris to be viewing that camera in particular before the crash. Then again, what is your point? Why are you there to view stuff in real time? Because people can't replay it. Neither Operation Paget nor the French inquiry located any pictures, any photographs of the Mercedes on the final route from the Ritz Hotel to the Alma underpass. But then you might think like, okay, so these paparazzi went through that underpass with the car. So even if we don't believe like any other conspiracy theories, the flashes might be from them, like they might have blinded them, caused this accident. And according to Operation Patrick, those arrested on the night disposed of the film before being taken to custody. So again, we don't have anything that they might have recorded before the crash, or some paparazzi didn't stop at the scene of the crash, or if they did, they weren't detained by authorities, but they didn't like release anything significant what might have explained what happened before going to the tunnel. So if you're looking with at uh, the map with me, you're looking you should be looking at the avenue Marceau or whatever however you pronounce it. So that's the one that goes into Alma Tunnel. And as you can see there's only one camera right there that would have recorded this and that's the traffic camera Rigo Rigo and that's like where the site of the crash is. And that is the traffic camera that I mentioned that, you know, we did things real time, but nobody was replaying it and there was no use of it later. But yes, the lack of CCTV cameras did definitely spark and unravel the rest of the conspiracy theories. Now we move on to the aftermath of the accident, because this is when it really heats up. If you're familiar with the story, you know that the conspiracy theories really start right from the accident site and then from the move to the ambulance. 
So the first call to the emergency services was logged at 12.26 a.m. The ambulance was dispatched and they went to the crash scene and departed from it at 1.41 a.m. and arrived to the hospital at 2.06 a.m. So the journey took approximately 26 minutes. Obviously, this is heavily disputed. First of all, why did it take this much time to arrive to the hospital? And the main kind of conclusion of a breakdown now is that, well, French people actually have different system of work where they try to help people more on the scene of the crime, on the scene of the crash, rather than getting them to the hospital, which would be the procedure here, to get them to the hospital and then sort of apply first aid there. However, I'm not going to sit here and like deny that none of this is weird in terms of protocol. In terms of like how ambulance reacted here and like everybody saying like what kind of Diana's last minutes alive were, it was excruciating. I mean, like, you can see the car of the accident, like, you can see how badly injured it was. And obviously, everybody, and obviously people will speculate, like, had they brought her to the hospital in time, maybe she would have lived, but we really don't have the guarantee of that. But as I mentioned, like, there are a couple of things that they will never be able to account for due to the lack of CCTV, due to the actual lack of monitoring of, like, what was happening, like, every single minute. Like, the point I'm driving at is that I wouldn't like this kind of treatment Diana got in general during the aftermath of this accident for myself, let alone for royalty. So I'm just thinking, like, obviously, had they arrived, like, if they arrived to the scene, the paparazzi probably alerting them, that, like, hey, this is Princess Diana. So they probably even had that in mind. But I don't think that they should have treated anybody, regardless of their royal status this way. So this journey of 26 minutes included a stop at the Gardi Austerlitz ordered by Dr. Martino because of the drop of the blood pressure of Princess Wales and the necessity to deal with it. However, again, like, they made it to the scene and were there for, what, about an hour trying to help out? Why wasn't this, like, realized, like, on the scene? So the doctor was concerned about her blood pressure and the effects of the consider of this condition of deceleration and acceleration, so like she was kind of like in and out of it. The conspiracy theorists do believe that, well, the first hospital that, you know, they kind of had to put her in, like to try to dis- like stabilize her blood pressure, wasn't actually equipped to deal with all of the injuries that she has sustained, so that in the transfer of hospitals, again, they have prolonged the care to the princess, so they had to transfer the hospital because that one had like the reception center for multiple trauma patients. Which again meant that they went, I'll put the maps up on the screen, but it meant they went and passed like another hospital on the way and went to the one it would take longer to get to. However, Operation Padre concluded that with the injuries that she got, she would have definitely not survived. And that the conspiracy around doctors and around like how she was treated would require a substantial number of expert doctors and other caregivers to break their ethics and then lie about it. Which I get that there is like multiple things, but not out of the realm of possible because again in any field everybody's gonna stick out for themselves like right now you as i have have probably listened to two seasons of dr death probably understand that 
people do and then they don't report something and say something because it is a doctor it is a nurse like why would you question somebody who studied for like 10 years and has the respect of the society if nothing else Operation Paget also concluded that she immediately underwent emergency treatment and surgery. They pronounced her dead at four in the morning. The procedures that have been followed are applicable to the normal French working practices that the SMMU, the hospital, was supplied with fully qualified doctors as part of their emergency response team. So again, no fault falls on any of those doctors or like, I want to say auxilia. So what is the word first aid? That, yes, it did take 26 minutes to complete a four-mile journey, but this was because they were traveling slowly on the express instructions of the doctor that was monitoring her blood pressure. And they said, like, while considering this long time, we need to consider the time taken for the arrival of the emergency services, medical assessments of all casualties, so, like, not just, again, focusing on the princess here. It's like they had to go check like four pulse and for everybody else in the car, there was four people. Um, the removal of a critically injured and awkwardly positioned casualty from the car. Okay. External cardiopulmonary resuscitation carried out in the roadway, transfer to the SAMU ambulance, further detailed medical examination in the ambulance and ambulance transport to the hospital. And finally, they conclude that all of the evidence shows that the French emergency services tried to do everything they could to save the life of hers and uh, that the view of the Dr. Richard Shepard on those specific injuries sustained by Princess Diana is that it was almost impossible for her to survive those kind of injuries. With the final conclusion being that there's no evidence to show any malicious or ulterior motives attached to the treatment of the princess, and that that would in result mean like that the, those medics would have deliberately breached the code of medical ethics. So the evidence was that every effort was made to save her life. Now, obviously, she's at the hospital. At a certain point that night, they pronounce her dead. The media goes wild. This second conspiracy theory about it, if I was to buy any of them, this would be it. Because this one, I just find way too fishy. And again, if this was me and somebody was to do this to like my body and then just shit me out, I would like, I would want my family to be pissed. I would want my family to investigate the shit out of this. I'm, of course, talking about the embalming of Princess Diana's body, which a lot of people aren't really familiar with, but this is the conspiracy theory about whether or not she was pregnant with Odifayed, and whether or not the royals therefore wanted to cover it up. So this was one of the main premises for the motives of alleged murder by the royal family, because obviously Odifayed was Muslim, they might not have wanted their ex-daughter-in-law, the princess of Wales, who still had connections to the royalty, was still very much popular, and not just that, but had two sons that had a claim to the throne, so they didn't want anybody out of their family to have a stepdad that's Muslim. So when she made it to the hospital, her body was stored in an empty room adjacent to the emergency room where she had been treated as the PT Salpeter Hospital, something like that. And this is because the mortuary was on the other side of the hospital grounds and some distance away, so they preserved her with dry ice and air conditioning units that were placed in the room to keep it cool, but appeared to have little success. So the body that was already kind of destroyed by this accident now, well, was even less preserved here, so it was decomposing quickly, 
Hence why they had to embalm it. This is what I'm telling you. It doesn't matter that this is even royalty. Like, I wouldn't want this kind of treatment even for myself. And uh, definitely not even close to any royalty ever or will be. And that this blood was obviously found to have no trace of hormone associated, hormones associated with pregnancy. The important thing here, and the one that I didn't know, is that she was actually sent to the UK, like, on the same day, because the accident happened around midnight. So later that same day, which is wild for me, that they have embalmed her, like, pronounced her dead, embalmed her within less than a day, and have already managed to, like, dispatch her back home. And that's the part that I just don't understand. Apparently, why they said that they have embalmed her is obviously to because she is royalty. They have finally clearly realized that. So they have to make her representable for the royals. It just sounds kind of shady in both parts. But then once she made it to the coroner of the Queen's household, Dr. John Burton, in the Fulham mortuary, he personally examined her womb and found her not to be pregnant. This is one of the first chapters, but... Okay, so how this first chapter goes, it interviews shit-ton of people with regards to the ring and whether Dottie Lafayette was trying to propose. And then that's about like 45 pages of just people giving interviews. Whoever wanted to like put their dime in there, put their five cents in, could. And then there's about like four or five pages just being like, well, she didn't have like AGB, she didn't have this in her system, which I understand from, again, the laboratory point of view, right? It's like, okay, cool, this is easy to confirm. We tested her blood, then we examined her womb. She therefore wasn't pregnant. However, it's kind of like in comparison and exactly because it follows one another, you kind of see that it just fades in comparison because obviously it's like 45 pages of this, then like five pages of that, and it's like a conclusion. You're like, but okay, so... Why didn't we commit as much here? Yes, I understand there's lab results. And then they interviewed like Diana's friends who said like, no, she's still taking like contraceptive. She's taking the pill. She doesn't want to be pregnant. However, like it's very easy to start off. It's like even reading the document that covers the official inquest to start thinking, well, why is one thing committed to like interviewing 30 people? And then the other thing is like, oh no, her friend said this, these are the results goodbye, case closed. So for me, this is the one where royals really try to tackle it first and sort of try to get it out of the way and then just move on to other theories. And it was sort of brushed off as if it was ridiculous enough to even be considered as a theory. Or was it? What people don't focus enough on is obviously how much paperwork had to be done even during that one day. And that's, I think... If, honestly, any conspiracy theorist who wants to, like, really propulse and, like, make this theory it, this is the thing that they should be focusing on. Because it just sounds like they were on it, they were rushing. Like, I don't know if this is, like, their general procedure, even to this date, or was back in the day. But it just looked like they couldn't get rid of this body sooner enough. It just genuinely looks like, nope, cool, we're at the hospital, now embalm her, now sign this paperwork, cool, we can embalm cool, now let's transport her back home. It just sounded like, like, what is the rush, considering that, well, you didn't take that kind of rush to save her in the first place. So, anti-French law paperwork is required to be completed before undertaking the embalming, and that paperwork was completed, but only after the embalming has been carried out. So, then they were 
that kind of sounds like a cover-up. Like, what, what do you mean? If you need to sign off for somebody to be in bomb, but then you sign off after they have been in bomb, sounds kind of, sounds, smells fishy. And in thinking about pregnancy, they didn't give her like any urine tests, and that is because again, it isn't standard to give deceased women pregnancy tests. So this wasn't like something unusual for the French. On the pregnancy thing, they conclude the operation pageant concludes there's no evidence that anyone undertook the embalming of the princess of Wales in order to be able to claim sus- subsequently that any positive pregnancy test could be attributed to the introduction of formaldehyde. Neither is there any evidence to show that embalming was carried out in order to destroy any samples of which a pregnancy test could be carried out. There are these two graphs like to just show you who like how the embalming in France works and well and the post-mortem law. And so it kind of tells you that all they needed is like the certificate of doctor certifying death confirming no medical or legal obstacles why the proceeding of embalming can't be completed. They only needed, well, they would have needed somebody like the authority of the last will of the deceased person, which in this case they didn't have because they didn't expect to die, or the person that is there to organize the arrangements, which again, there wasn't like a member of her family. So all they had to go on was the authority of public prosecutor or the examining magistrate to put everything into action. And the second graph shows that in the cases of the car crash, well, no statutory obligation on public prosecutor examining magistrate order a post-mortem examination for drivers or passengers. So again, they just said, like, we have basically done everything we could. We have taken her bloods, like, it wouldn't be regular procedure to do any other test to, like, confirm pregnancy. You know, it wasn't that kind of crime. It was a car crash, hence why we have signed off on this. To which I'm saying, you don't have to call bullshit on this to understand that this is just a bit too French. I understand French are all about, like, you know, fashion and looking presentable, but then you're not putting enough time. Like, there's no proportionate reason of of timing in any of this. You know, the timing, like, so she was put in a room, she was preserved by dry ice and shit, like, for her body to be preserved. Then they realized, like, okay, actually, this doesn't work. So we need to embalm her to make her presentable. So she needs to look pretty. But then we're not really focusing on, like, all of the paperwork, all of the signing off on it. It's like, no, somebody just can make a decision. We, like, have to make her look pretty. We have to make this person look pretty. And it's like 90% of the time is going in there and 10% is going into legalities. And, like, <laughs> I really hope the law in France has changed because this is just it's just giving me a headache. It's like, wh- where do we live? Why do we live in the world where someone needs to look presentable rather than us ensuring that before we embalming, like, we make all the necessary requirements? We fulfill all the requirements. We make sure we are not in shit legally after we put this dispatch this person to their home country. Meaning, in this case, Professor Bruno Rio, the surgeon of the PT Salpetriere Hospital, signed the relevant form stating that there is no legal or medical obstacles associated with the body. And then the deputy public prosecutor, Maud Corjard, signed a burial certificate and relinquished any responsibility for the body, including the decision of embalming. So that meant it can still go forward because, well, the surgeons determined that there is nothing wrong, so why wouldn't it go forward? And then the body was embalmed in the accordance with this code for non-suspicious deaths. Just the paradox in all of it is is kind of sneaking up on you. 
after all of this. It's like, okay, it's car crash, nothing suspicious here. We kind of suspect there was a different car. We didn't allow for enough time for us to investigate that, though, so... And we gotta transport this woman and make it look pretty for her home country, so let's do it. This embalming thing is just one thing that will always creep up on me. In terms of all of these conspiracy theories, this is the one where I'm like, it's not even as much as hiding the pregnancies. It's more of like, just how they dealt with it, how like speedily this was done. I was like, okay, this does sound like, you know, how to get away with murder plot, where everybody's in on it and it's just like, it's the cause and effect. It's like one domino falls over and then like everything else is put in action and it's just about how speedily you act on it. And what I find absurd, okay, I found this in only one source and I didn't see it on the Operation Paget, so... I'm not like 100% sure this is correct, but if it is, A, it wouldn't surprise me, and B, it is just dawning. So it says that uh, this article said the French file on Diana's death is a 6,000-page document compiled over the 18 months of the initial investigation. But we won't know what it is in it until 2082, according to the Mirror. So Mirror is the source here, okay? So they might have gotten some bogus fucking interview. Oh, and this is because of the French law about sealing court documents for 75 years. Which is wild. What the fuck? This is, I put it, this is more bizarre than the statute of limitations. Also, I'm sorry, but like, if the royalty of a country can't overrule this, who can? That's why I'm suspicious, like... Is this correct? Is this not? Ahead of the 2008 inquest, it was even reported that a file had gone missing, so we don't know even if it's still around, if it ever fucking existed in the first place. And I'm thinking that, yes, A, this is the mirror article, so the correctness of it might not be there. However, can anybody find me French documents of the equivalent for the Operation Paget or 2008 inquest on what they have done, because they have conducted investigations. Is that in French? Why is it not translated in English if it is? Why don't we have, like, every single thing? Because, yes, I'm putting in this video, like, the pictures of the maps or, you know, these graphs and, like, the sequence of events that happens when it comes to embalming, etc. However, there's no, like, full translation of the events that there should be if what they're saying is enough, like if they have this 6,000-page document, or if just like the recap of that day, give me those 24 hours, what have you been doing, how have you been following procedures in accordance to laws, kind of like the Operation Paget, but in French, about the sequence of events. The rush was also justified because Diana's two sisters and Prince Charles were scheduled to view the body later that afternoon, so again on the same day, before people brought it to the United Kingdom. So they literally had hours, like quite just literally hours to make this decision. Also the president of France at the time, Jacques Chirac, whatever, Jack, Jack Chirac, yeah. He and his wife also wanted to pay their respects. What Operation Paget has to say about this whole conspiracy when it comes to pregnancy testing and embalming, and as I told you, this was like only a couple of pages long in chapter one, it's kind of like, hey, let's conclude this, wrap it up, and then move on to like other fucking 700 pages in this document. So no pregnancy test was carried out at any time during the treatment, there was no need or relevance for carrying out such a test. At the request of the Operation Paget, when they reopened it and looked into the evidence provided by the Home Office pathologist, Dr. Richard Shepard, he said there are no pathological features to support the suggestion of a pregnancy. So that's the guy that examined her womb. 
But then what I found interesting is that the blood that was taken at post-mortem examination was considered unreliable because of the amount of blood transfusion the Princess of Wales had undergone as part of her medical treatment. Okay, so we did have blood, we did test it, but was that blood reliable because it was like the transfusion blood? They're just trying, it kind of just does sound like they're trying to find leeways on all of this. So because of that, they have investigated the blood of Princess Diana that was found on the scene and was in this carpet by her seat. And this blood source was considered to be a better sample to investigate and one that could provide a more reliable result. So this has been confirmed to be Princess of Wales and then they tested it. And that after the testing, the conclusion followed that the tests have shown that the blood stain from the carpet was tested and no HCG hormone was detected. And as mentioned, they included that they did speak to like the friends and the family and they have told them that like they had no knowledge of the pregnancy. But then interestingly, the Operation Paget document says that some of her friends spoke to the princess um, like before she died. She provided them with the evidence that she was not pregnant at the time, but that the personal and intimate nature of that evidence suggested that it will be inappropriate to include details of it in this report. And the detailed evidence is held with Operation Paget. Which brings me to the main issue why people still believe in the conspiracy theories. Because if you are withholding things, then what is the point of all of it? Like, what is the point of the Operation Paget? Okay, cool. Then why are there no partial? Like, I understand, like, redacted or like somebody's like, okay, actually, no, I don't want that in the document. First of all, why are you giving an interview? But second of all, then, why is there no partial interview on that? Why are we not considering everything? Why do we have a document in the first place if we still have redacted information? Where is the French equivalent? Get on it. But according to the Operation Paget, no ring, there was no ring, there was no baby, we move on. So before discussing the rest of the really popular conspiracy theories. Let's just go back into the sequence of events. So, Diana is embalmed, she has been transported to the United Kingdom, and obviously we come to her funeral. <laughs> Which also, may I mention so, is probably one of these events in this sequence, and the only one that doesn't consist of like a million conspiracy theories, which I did find a bit strange when it comes to it, but then I guess millions of people have actually seen it in their own eyes, and we did have CCTV footage of it, and that's why. So on the morning of September the 6th, Diana's funeral, funeral procession commenced from Kensington Palace, and her coffin was resting on this carriage drawn by six black horses. And this is, if you watch any documentary, like, on, on this event, heartbreaking on so many levels, but mostly because 15-year-old William and 12-year-old uh, Harry were joining the stretch, and it kind of just looked like, I mean, I guess, like, yes, you do have to be there, and, like, yes, millions will still be looking at you, whether it is from the screens or whether they were present for it, but just nobody really cared about the mental health of those boys. Like, paparazzi were still as in their face as they were to their mother. And, well, if that doesn't break you, then what definitely will break you if you watch any of these documentaries is the eulogy from her brother, Earl Charles Spencer, and then followed by the performance of Elton John. Like, her brother's words at the funeral just always 
like realistic to me. Like I had a couple of meltdowns while watching, while researching this this week. So her body was laid to rest at the gravesite on a small island of her family's estate in Altorp. Now moving on to like some other popular conspiracy theories, and well. We have to start with the drunk driver, or as I titled this conspiracy theory, the one they want you to believe in, because they had somebody to blame, and that somebody just had managed to be the driver, so hey, he's a driver, he's the one in charge, and also just managed to be dead as well. So here there were two issues. One, that he was driving too fast, like he was driving up to 121 miles per hour, while the speed limit in this tunnel was 30 miles per hour. The second bit of the problem is his blood alcohol level, and as I mentioned, like it was measured twice, and two completely different conclusions came to light. According to the French Tox lab test, Paul was found to have 12.8% carbon hemoglobin saturation, and the smoker usually has 10%, so this wasn't like something unusual, because Paul has been known to smoke these small cigars, cigarillos, which is just a word for cigars, <laughs> cigarettes in general. And um, he was found to be smoking that before the crash. But then another test, backed by the opponents of the tox lab, found that he had 20.7% in his blood at his death, which, if accurate, would mean that this dispersed like this leveling of carbon monoxide with the bloodstream would have meant that his blood had 40% saturation a few hours earlier, which means he wouldn't have been able to function at all, let alone drive a car. So why are there two lab results? Which one is correct? Is there an impartial lab that could have tested this? Probably not, because we need somebody to blame, and that's already been concluded. Another issue, obviously, because of so many conspiracy theories that arrived, first, was the body his? Or did somebody, while this ambulance was taking their precious time to arrive, first of all, switch the body? That's a less popular one. Second one, that kind of might might be backed up, because just how they dealt with blood, and because they're two completely different blood results, was whether it was his blood sample in the first place. However, this was debunked by the comparison with samples provided by Paul's parents, demonstrating that the blood tested was that of Henry Paul, and uh, he had the three times of the French legal limit of alcohol in his blood. And this was as recent as 2009, so they're kind of sticking to the second of the results, because again, they had an inquest, they had to have somebody. They had to have a scapegoat. What I found interesting here when it comes to Henry Paul is the Operation Paget spin of events. They did like include uh, alcohol consumption, like what was he tested for, so which included urine, stomach contents. However, they have also concluded that the driver was actually taking and treating, in a way, his alcohol dependency. According to them, he had um, the results of carbohydrate-deficient transferrin test, if it means anything to anybody thinking about this chemically, that said that um, he had moderate chronic alcoholism for at least a week. And his doctor stated that he has prescribed Henry Paul with two drugs associated with treatment of alcohol dependency. One was Iotal, or Aotal, used exclusively in the treatment of alcohol dependency, and the second one was Theapride, or Neuroleptic, that's also used for dependency of alcohol, just any alcohol alcohol-related issues. 
And they also concluded that, well, Henry Paul wasn't really supposed to be working that night. Like, when he was at the Ritz at 7pm, he believed he finished for the day, so he went and had a couple of drinks, but people have reported he only had, like, two recards, so, like, only kind of two units of alcohol. But he was informed by the security officer at around 10pm, so three hours later, of the couple's unexpected return to the Ritz Hotel, and he made his way back to work immediately. So from one end, it's like, yeah, we don't blame him for drinking because he wasn't expecting to be working. But then on the other end, we have like, hey, we we blame him for the death of four people, though, because he was somehow driving like so much above the speed limit and he also had this much alcohol in the system. It's very much hypocritical in a way. And also what we will never have answers to is why wasn't there anybody else? Like, why was he the one who had to drive that evening if he was sort of let go of, like, who brought that decision? Why was that decision not, like, reconsidered later? Like, it's, listen, every decision matters, okay? And then the conspiracy theory doesn't really fit anywhere, but it kind of fits everywhere. So let's mention it by talking about Henry Paul. And that was that a lot of people, including doctors and the bodyguard that was the only survivor, had mentioned that there is a greater chance of survival for Diana and everybody else in that car had they been wearing a seatbelt. And none of them, except from the only survivor, the bodyguard has been wearing it. Princess Diana was apparently religious about it like she was seen in every single picture you see her like in cars she would be the one wearing a seatbelt so how come that on this evening suddenly nobody in the car and herself would be wearing one and Dr. Richard Shepard, Britain's top forensic pathologist, concluded that she had like a quite specific injury, and that was this tiny, badly placed ear in the vein of her lung. And that this was so rare, he said in his career he didn't he doesn't believe he has seen another one of those. And had she been restrained, she would probably have appeared in public two days later with a black eye, perhaps a bit breathless from the fractured ribs and with a broken arm in a sling. End quote. So that's a fucking bummer. Just, I mean, if if anything makes you want to wear a seatbelt, even though it just looks ridiculous, just this is the story. This is the story. Does it? He's like, yeah, she would have had minor injuries, which again they did have to work on her bodyguard for quite some time. But then I guess maybe he was trying to shield her, and she was in a better position in like the back seat. So I don't think that she would have just had minor injuries because that car was destroyed. But yes, maybe she would have survived. The next conspiracy theory, and the one that people love, is that MI6 was involved. And not just MI6, but this is... this is Okay. There's a Serbian conspiracy theory in so many devs. Especially here in the UK, actually. Jill Dando, you know, the BBC journalist? Yeah, they had like... a. Conspiracy theory that a Serb has killed her as well, and that is far fetched. But this one is is about like hundred times more far fetched. So this guy Richard Tomlinson, who was a former MI6 officer, alleged that he was monitoring Diana before her death, and he told the dad of Dodi Fayed uh, that Paul, her driver, was an MI6 agent from his observations, and this death mirrored the plans he saw. In the attempt of the assassination in 1992 of the, the ex-president of Serbia, Slobodan Milosevic, using the strobe light to blind his chauffeur. So his idea is that these 
paparazzi were there on purpose. They were there as planned, as agreed with the driver, and they were just flashing light on the motorbikes, hence why the car had to swerve. And his claims are partially supported by the route taken by the driver, because he didn't take like the straight route from the Ritz Hotel to the boyfriend's apartment that would be maybe the fastest one, but he took the one for the tunnel. So some people suspect that this was intentional, so that the driver was in on it, obviously. And not just that, but to ensure that that will happen, the actual route was blocked by the MI6. And then when the car was to enter the tunnel, the lights would flash, and that would blind the driver so he would swerve and crash, and then the other vehicle that was supposed to just ensure that this is happening would just flee the scene. This was dispelled by the eyewitnesses on the scene because nobody could agree like how many motorcycles were there. Nobody could agree like how this car even looked like, how many drivers were in this other Fiat car. And during the inquest, Sir Richard Dearlove, the former head of MI6, confirmed that yes, this was his theory, but it was rejected. Operation Pageant concluded that if the Mercedes was actually traveling at the speed indicated by these eyewitnesses who like claim that they have seen the light, then it would not have been possible to make the right turn into the slip road. So basically its route and how it ended into that pillar wouldn't have been possible, judging by what people have claimed that they have seen. Operation Pageant take on this is that in the presence of another vehicle, the Fiat Uno, for example, it would be necessary Many arrangements and logistical details mentioned would need to form the part of the conspiracy to ensure that the Mercedes was in that right location, that right time. That's why I find this one to be, I would say, the least credible one. If you remember, they went from south to France to Paris, and then they kind of planned that like dining thing to Ritz on a whim for somebody to like overhear that to like inform suddenly the security the MI6 to arrange all of this on a whim during a day wouldn't be impossible however it's not as probable as and so much focus has been done on this this like kind of this section in itself had about like 200 pages and I was like really this was the focus like for, for real? <laughs> this is what, like, so many people have inspired. Like, I understand it is because it is the MI6. So it's like, it is the governmental agency whose name they have to clear. However, then, why wasn't the same amount of time given into investigating other things? There is sort of, like, a sub-point here, and that is to mention that um, Dottie's dad, at some point, did believe that the bodyguard Trevor Reese joins has turned on him by the security services. And whether or not, well, he does remember, but doesn't want to tell, because what he would be hiding. But Trevor has been cleared by everybody and he has written a book himself about like, well, his service and the, his own like views on Diana. But he doesn't remember the accident or anything on it. So I don't think that he is involved. It's just like survivor's fucking guilt of just Imagine surviving that kind of accident. The whole of the world wants to know what has happened and you can't tell them. So, well, that's a bummer. <laughs> now, as I mentioned, the Operation Paget did blame it mostly on Henry Paul, and they kind of said, like, yeah, paparazzi had involvement on them because they were constantly following them. However, there's a whole, again, conspiracy theory in this that paparazzi should have been blamed 
that this bright light might have been from them or might have been just flashes, if nothing else. In the immediate aftermath of the accident, seven French photographers were arrested and questioned by the police. Only three of them were found guilty of invasion of privacy, but were fined a symbolic one euro, because again, we didn't have the ways to deal with this like we do now when it comes to paparazzi era. Researching this and just watching like all of the freaking documentaries on on Diana kind of just gave me very much Britney vibes. Just that this was obviously the member of the royal family. But in terms of like paparazzi, in terms of everybody following her, is just to that level of insanity. And there is this like heartbreaking moment. I think it was at her funeral or like the memorial when everybody was bringing flowers to the Buckingham Palace when Diana died. And this guy just like shouted because paparazzi were again there commemorating it now. No respect whatsoever for anybody. And uh, this guy said, like, her blood is on your hands. And I was like, I mean, partially, yeah. Would any of this have happened had they not been trying to avoid paparazzi in the first place? Probably not. So this conspiracy theory has about three forms. The first one is that the paparazzi were chasing and pushing Diana's Mercedes so that it could make the crash happen. The second one is that the members of the paparazzi encouraged the environment where a crash would happen. More plausible in terms of like when they were on the scooters going around, like they had more mobility. And the third one is that they accidentally created a situation that the conspirators exploited to kill the people in the car. But Operation Paget found that their behavior was just a normal behavior by the paparazzi and they hadn't been participating in any criminal conspiracy. This is also based by the eyewitness testimony that they had. This next umbrella of conspiracy theories is the mysterious car situation. So it's split into two. One, the first one is a Fiat Uno. Where is it? What is it? Who was driving it? What the hell? Why? How did anything in that tunnel happen? This is the one where I was like, okay, if if I was to personally look at the whole crime scene and be like, okay, I understand we have to focus and work on what you have. However, this is the one thing that maybe after you have like embalmed her and like sent her off to the royalty, maybe consider what the hell are we doing about this car? Like, chase every Fiatuno. Like, how many Fiatunas were there in Paris at that time? How many lived close by? How many took those routes? That's the thing that I can't find. (laughs) That's one thing that you're not reading about, that you're not hearing about from me right now. And the second one is, well, was something wrong with the car? Again, going back to the seatbelt issue, to the speed of it. So, the Fiatuno was never found. As we know, it did leave some paint traces on the bodywork of the Mercedes. Then Mr. Fayed alleged that um, the vehicle was used by the security services, blocked the road in front, closing the car to swerve and crash. In terms of the other theory, the eyewitnesses said like, yes, the driver was driving fast, but there was nothing strange in the way that he was driving prior to entering the tunnel. And Operation Paget took into consideration the theory, well, that the speedometer wasn't actually working, because how was it even possible they were driving at that speed in that tunnel? But Operation Paget concluded that the interpretation of the physical evidence from the collision scene undertaken by their investigators corroborates that impact speed, so they can actually physically determine, again, with cars, at what speed they collided. To which, again, I'm very suspect of this Fiat Uno, because how does one car 
sort of like it must have been like a really brief collision and then they went into a pillar because one car ended up unscathed just leaving a paint on the other and moving on with their life whereas the other one ended up completely destroyed and in terms of defects with the car they have confirmed that there were no defect in seat belt system the seat belts were just not used and there was no signs of interference with the vehicle this theory still kind of resonates hard with the public. Uh, like, I'm not going to go into like further details. But why it resonates so hard with the public is in those letters between Diana and the butler, she does mention how paranoid she was. And she was quite paranoid, like even before her divorce. And was paranoid like that people are bugging her, which ended up being true. Like there are certain conversations between both her and her lovers and then Charles and Camilla, that have been recorded. Um, but she did mention to her butler that she kind of feared for her life and she did think that, that Charles might be sabotaging against her and that he might be actually monitoring the car. So she was not a stranger to changing vehicles in the UK when in the UK sort of like on a whim just to ensure her safety. So this is why this one is still very close to the public. So in this chapter, the summary and conclusions from, I'm just going to call it a pageant, like as if it's the name of a person. There were two eyewitnesses that provided the evidence that the Mercedes was prevented from using the other road, so that exit slip road that we spoke about. Um, the loss of driver control started before the entry slip road in the approach to the underpass. At least one motorcycle and four cars passed the crash Mercedes. Mercedes, um, the white Fiat Uno would also have to have passed the crashed car. And they confirmed that they managed to find paint and some bumper material, but not enough to say like the car was that Fiat Uno was like solely responsible for this accident. <sighs> Way to go. Claim it on a driver in it. So for me, the conclusion of all of these conspiracy theories is that just the focus, I don't think it was put on the right things. Hence why I think like people still choose to rather believe their own options, their own conspiracy theories. But I think it was important, and I haven't seen this done, like giving the actual findings and like what was actually done with regards to the inquests and to Operation Paget. And, well, Harry and William and the rest of the royals choose to believe that this was the accidental crash and that, yes, there were people to blame, but nobody directly. And those people just happened to be dead. And if you believe in any of these conspiracy theories, like, let me know which one, which one really sticks with you. I think I made it clear, like, it is the embalming one, if anything, for it. Let me just make this clear. I don't think the royals wanted Diana dead. I don't think, like, there was conspiracy theories from, like, MI6 or any certain agencies. I think, like, the focus was more on that and where it should have been is the accident, what was done on the spot, what has been done afterwards, why was there no focus of finding that car? Who does that car belong to? Because that's where everything lies. Like, which which nation, which country, which maybe agency, then I would be buying it. Had they managed to, like, find a car like that. And it's more about, okay, give me then the French account of events, because there's two parties here. Give me their account of events. Why was everything done with such a rush? 
Like, you can't give me a bullshit example of, okay, cool, somebody signed off on the embalming and, like, it was because to make her look pretty and presentable. Who the fuck is? I bet, like, rather people would rather have the truth and, like, have somebody not question this years and years later and make, like, documents and work incessantly for, like, 831 pages documents and would, like, have her look okay without her being, like, oh my god, I'm so pretty, like, I'm being embalmed. So now that we have that forever underwhelming thing when it comes to conspiracy theories and solutions that just won't shut people up, let's uh, discuss Diana's background and her legacy. Diana was born on 1st of July 1961 near Sandringham in England. She was a daughter of Edward John Spencer and Frances Ruth Burke. Both of them, so they were Viscount and Viscountess. Remember? Remember the, the hierarchy that I told you? Well, good, because I don't, because it was yesterday and I have a fish brain. So yes, they were, well, they weren't Baron and Baroness, so they were like above that, whichever level that was. So they were technically royalty. What everybody talks about the documentaries is that she was like always this happy, like mischievous child. Well, she took, but she took her parents' divorce to heart. So they divorced when she was young and her dad won custody of the children. And Diana had two older sisters and a younger brother, Earl. And following her education at home, she then attended Riddlesworth Hall School and then West Heath School. Then she went to study abroad in Switzerland and attended Institut Alpine Videmanet, and then after that she moved to London and started working with children. She became the assistant at a kindergarten. And at the time, Charles was actually dating her eldest sister, Sarah, which I just love how everybody neglects that part. Like, that's not the weirdest part in this whole story. That, like, he was dating your older sister and now he's dating you and you're, what, suspecting that, like, that family is just operating as normal? Clearly not. Everybody just brushes off this, like, yeah, he's dating your sister. Nothing special. So at a member of a shooting party, Diana appeared, like, as a guest and... Charles was immediately just, like, smitten. Or from anything I have seen. And, I mean, the crown, which doesn't really depict this part, like, super great. But it's more of a fixation. Diana was 16 at the time. Charles was about 13 years older than her, so 29. Um, It's more from a true crime perspective, again, that I'm putting on this somewhat of a grooming situation. Like, this is like, hey, you are fixated on, like, a young girl that's also minor, which we, again, forget in this instance. And then, well, you just want that pretty little thing. And the tabloids really took the wheel when she spent a weekend at Balmoral as the guest of Prince Charles, and the headline sparked, that sparked everything was He's in Love Again that came out in 1980. And this will spark the press's obsession with Lady Diana that would follow her until her death. I also put here, when she met him, she was 16. Did you know who you were going to end up with when you were 16? Better not sweethearts, unless you're sweethearts. No, I did put better not sweethearts. So, so yeah. I do believe, yes, I listen, I believe, yeah, cool. If you found the one when you were 16 and you are now still with them, congratulations. Wow, you lucky bastard. Aren't you proud of yourself? Yeah, rub it in my nose right now. Cool. Well, the decisions I made when I was 16 and the crush that I had, I wish not to touch with a stick today. So, 
so so did Diana. So this is how I relate to the royalty <laughs> in this particular way. In February 1981, Prince Charles proposes to Diana with the 18 carat white gold ring. <sighs> Why am I reading this? Stop with the 12 carat oval. <laughs> Sail on sapphire, surrounded by 14 solitaire diamonds. Did you get that? Did you catch it? Did you care? No, neither did I. People did. Everybody else did. Okay. <laughs> and the ring reportedly cost Charles 28,000 pounds at the time, which is about like $35,000. Listen, I don't know. Is that? Is that? Okay. Is that cheap? Like, as in on, on the spectrum of like royalty like i would be like but why did you just spend 28k like you have millions so wait like am i just so i'm worth to you 28k i would totally cause a fuss i'd be like hey i'm from a normal family i'm marrying into royalty i expect better than this like duh and fun fact for you uh prince william proposed with this particular ring to kate middleton which i would just be like are you okay i mean i i guess but but wait i mean it was in one marriage before, and that marriage didn't work out. I understand this if this was going from generation to generation. However, this marriage didn't work out. But sure, hey, listen, Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, you do you. You're probably the most stable couple in the family, let's be honest, to be honest. So yeah, you rock that ring. Everything goes around and comes around. So as I told you, she was to get a title, which in her case was Princess of Wales, when she married Prince Charles, in, and she did so on July 29th, 1981. Their wedding took place at St. Paul's Cathedral. If you watch, like, Diana in her own words, or, like, another Diana Chronicles, or whatever it's called, which is in two parts on, on Netflix, like, you will see everything from, like, the tabloid perspective, really, that documentary. Like, the people have kept that wedding dress on the hush like how many people watched it from all over the world people were immediately like hey why does she not look like as as happy as she should be why did they come separately even leaning together all that i mean everybody knew why they were leaving together because they had to consummate the marriage that's why okay <laughs> oh my god Jesus. but this is when it becomes really sad which i get it's a wedding they had about, like, almost 3,000 guests. They had 2,650 guests. The fuck? And, yeah, the press was happy, which meant everybody was still happy. They were buying the fairy tale story. It was truly the culmination of it. Like, what everybody was waiting for in this story it was her I made it moment. But what people didn't know, and what she said in that, in her own words, documentary, is that... She was immediately anxious and kind of doubting it from the get-go. She had, like, food disorder. She had bulimia, which I'm not going to really touch upon. I don't think it's it's my place or, like, that I have, like, enough information to touch upon that. But that part was correct if you have watched The Crown and you're thinking, like, hey, which part is correct? But it started sort of, like, from the nervousness like prior to the wedding and as a lot of you who are following well even the fashion part of it know it is that she lost a lot of weight just prior to the wedding and when i say a lot i don't mean like oh you know like somebody losing a couple of kg it's more like 15 20 kg in the couple of weeks before the wedding and his wedding designers have said like it was more of like tightening against the waist like when every every time she would go and try the wedding dress and it was like okay 
It's like, is, is something wrong? But nobody, nobody said nothing. Everybody was just like, hey, she's living her dream. She's becoming a princess. Let's not say anything to ruin this. And, well... She was 16 and then she was 20 when she got married. So from everything I gathered from her own words, she was as into Charles, but well, he was never really into her. He was always into Camilla and she started suspecting it even before the marriage. But then a couple of years into that, that will become more and more prevalent. And as it becomes prevalent, she gives birth to Prince William in 1972 and Harry in 1984 and... And the kids were truly like her rocker, like why she was staying and doing what she was doing. Because at these points, like when she was having the pregnancy, she still wasn't like the Diana, like the people knew later in life. She still have, didn't get her own confidence. She kind of was from, at least what I gathered, really dependent on those kids for the happiness to bring her like some joy in that environment. Once, however, she did see the therapist, she spoke about her issues and dealt with her food disorder. She sort of started developing and pursuing her own interests. So, as a lot of people know, she did ton, ton for the gay community. And that is prevalently because she was the one that spoke with people with HIV and AIDS and children in need. One of those documentaries that I watched kind of went into, everybody was speculating whether when she visits those hospitals, will she be touching those patients, AIDS patients, HIV patients with gloves? And then I was like, no, there's no need to like touch them with gloves, which was sensational at the time. And it kind of put like the breach of that barrier between the royalty and just people in need, people suffering. So she gave that people's touch, hence why she was named the People's Princess by the public. She was famous for her charity work for different charities in London, but was also well known from, for her work with AIDS victims, children with leukemia, and for the removal of landmines. So there's that famous footage of her like wandering the streets of Angola, photographing her speaking to like black children in need, or just walking through the minefield cleared uh, by the Halo Trust charity. With years, there were plenty of speculations about infidelities on both parts, and tabloids really took the wheel. But the one that kind of confirmed it for everybody, well, there were plenty. It's been this many days since we have seen these two in public, or like, hey, after a month for seeing each other, after travels, they're not even like, they couldn't even stand looking at each other. It was so bad. Like, they wouldn't touch hands, and like, all of the fucking lenses were really on that, and like, how do they appear in public? But I think what confirmed it for everybody was when she posed in India as well, outside of the India's Taj Mahal. And that's recorded, which I didn't know, as the world's most romantic building. And she posed by herself while she was apparently on that trip with her husband. Everybody was like, okay, hey, Diana, like, where's Charles? It's like, just phoning Camilla. It's like, he'll be right back. <laughs> And I love because this is when Diana was truly her baddest self, like during that like divorce period and then afterwards. But when they asked her about the Taj Mahal, she said it was a healing experience, very healing. And when they were like, okay, what do you mean by that? She said, work it out for yourself. Like, yeah, bitch. Like, I didn't just surpass my fucking food disorder and everything to be sitting here by my own boss herself. Also, my princess, I can do that. Work it out for yourself. Like, work it out. You go, you spy on him. <laughs> go, go let me live in peace. Personal opinion, because it has to be fitted in somewhere. 
yes, both of them did to a certain degree know what they were going into. However, again, one more than the other, because the other was a minor and then she was 20 when she married him and she wasn't born into it, right? Diana wasn't natural, like, as much as you might think, even if you were obsessive over royalty, have watched every single thing, and you're like, no, I would actually know exactly what to do, exactly how to behave, would you? Because you weren't born into you, you didn't live it for about 29, 30, 32 years of your life for that to be so innate to you. Then from Charles's point of view, well, he knew he was into Camilla, like, early on, but she was married. He was like, well, what would be great for my public image is dating this girl who is going to give me, you know, the sons, the heirs to the throne, who is going to make me look friendly, look more approachable, look more like a nice public figure, look more as like a down-to-earth man who is not part of the royalty or anything like that. However, what I don't think he realized, and that's on him, because at that point he was kind of like, well, my age or like a year older at that point he was like 29 he started dating her then like in his 30s when he's married her so he definitely should have known what he was doing is that you need to really know yourself you know (laughs) that's why you need to have you need to start with therapy early you need to know yourself you need to know like if you yourself love to be the center of attention love to be it crave it need it in your life then you can't let Another person who also wants to be center of attention, maybe for different things, maybe for her charity work rather than just being royalty and being born into something and like, or achieving her princess like dream, then you can't have another person like that. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah, you are going to be miserable, she's going to be miserable, everybody's going to be miserable. So that's why you need to know yourself to know who to marry, who to know how that all clashes and fits together. But he didn't, and that is honestly more of his problem rather than Diana's problem because she was a lot younger. And she didn't like form her identity in that way yet. Back to the story. The separation from Charles was announced in December 1992 by British Prime Minister at the time, John Major, and he read a statement from the royal family to the House of Commons, but divorce wasn't finalized until 96. However, Diana was like her own person by that point, and she even, what I put as a point of no return, published her story with Andrew Morton. So she found this journalist who was also like a biographer, and she finally spoke about everything that she was living through. And this was quite, like, scandalous for the time. Well, even today, it would be scandalous, like, if a member of a royal family would come out with something like this. But it was scandalous on, like, different levels, because nobody spoke about, well, marital issues in the royal family. Nobody spoke about food disorders this way. And as divorce was finalizing, she would retain the Princess of Wales title and her apartments in Kensington Palace, but she agreed to give up the Her Royal Highness title and any claim to the British throne. Which again, going back to like my opinion on this whole situation, I don't think that was her general motive, because I feel like we need to judge the postmouth of the actions. It's like, yes, she might have wanted her royal dream, she might have been infatuated by Charles, by the whole proposition like of going into royalty, but it's what she did with that, how she dealt with children, how she dealt with all the charity work that really shows you what she was in there for, for in the first place. Whereas, well, what was Charles doing all that time? Hmm. 
And as that divorce was finalizing, she was truly, again, remaining her high publicity in the public. But now she knew how to play the paparazzi. Now she twisted it around, which I just love so much because it's that fuck you moment. It's this when, like, Diana establishes her, like, fuck you side of her personality. That was like, yes, this is like a whole power estate in herself. And you shouldn't have underestimated that. You married her when she was 20 years of age, mate, because right now, Diana can kick your fuck. Yes. How do you ensure to serve the fucking moment to your ex-husband by using the paparazzi and the media to backfire onto him who finally thought like the media is going to like finally go back to focusing on him and he is finally going to be the center of attention whereas then I was like oh, you know what I'd love to but I really can't. Which brought a lot of like different famous appearances to her in public. It's that famous black dress with like cleavage on. But most importantly, brought the Panorama interview where she said that, well, I just love how subtly she said that. It's like, well, there was there were three people in my marriage, you know? So it was a bit crowded and people lost their fucking minds. And then again, she took that power and the media to highlight the world issues. So again, she was like, okay, not just that I'm going to put this fuck you moment in your face, but I'm also going to highlight the more important issues in the world that, you know, you and your, like, privileged royal family. And it's truly then when people, like, fell for her even more because she always used to use her underdog culture and to identify and to identify with the most vulnerable with those who needed people the most in the room and that human connection is what attracted the media to keep following her instead again of the guy that just didn't know how to do like which there's no excuses at this point there's no excuse you don't know yourself and then you don't know how to like manipulate the world to like buy your side of the story just there's only one winner in here i mean yeah, nobody wins. But there's one winner in our eyes. And in 1997, the world again exploded because they spotted her with Dodi Fayed, who was the Egyptian film producer and kind of a playboy. And they spotted them in uh, on his yacht in the south of France. But reportedly, the two of them actually met 10 years before on, uh, on a polo match when Fayed and Charles played on the opposing teams. So that, I mean, if there's any, if there's so many ultimate fuck you moments, but yeah, this is definitely one of them. Her butler, poor Burrell, reported that this was, he saw this relationship more as a rebound because after her breakup from Charles, Diana dated Hasnat Khan, who was a Pakistani heart surgeon. So that she was more serious about this. And this was kind of just like a rebound relationship. Hence sparking like all of the conspiracy theories about like she wasn't planning to remarry in the first place and to get preggers this fast. I'd actually suggest watching Diana in her own words. It's not on Netflix any longer. I think they removed it like the 1st of December. I just watched it like in the Nico time for this research. But yeah, you know, find it illegally on the hush hush. Don't tell them I told you so. Because it is actually like from her perspective and like she kind of retells her story in the sequence of events. And it tells you that, well, A, that the crown actually didn't portray it that badly, even though it was just like dramatized and kind of in poor taste because they put like kind of an American like spin onto a British drama, which I was like, okay, sure. But it gives you her side of the story and it's truly like immersive and like see looking at it from like her 
POV rather than, you know, looking at fucking spoiled as Charles in the crown. So, <laughs> really should not be talking about the royalty this way, considering, you know, I'm getting a passport and all that. But... Her legacy continued, obviously, after her death, and in 2007, ten years after her death, William and Harry honored their mother with a special concert that took place on what would have been her 46th birthday, and the proceeds went to charities that were supported by Diana, and then her sons continued supporting uh, William and his wife Kate remember Diana when they were naming her second child, which I was like, what? <laughs> because it's like, isn't her name Charlotte? But her name is Charlotte Elizabeth Diana, which again, don't. Mm -mm. It's the lot. No, I don't, I don't fully accept this, to be honest. Diana Princess of Wales Memorial Fund was founded after her death to provide resources for palliative care the end-of-life care, penal system, penal reform, asylum, and other issues. And in 2013, this fund was incorporated into the Royal Foundation of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and Prince Harry. Because Harry continued to speak about more and more about, like, mental health. Like, out of the two, I think, like, he is definitely more like his mother consistently. In the attention-seeking way as well, but also in the more, like, sensitive way, in the way that he's not afraid to, like, exploit this vulnerable side. So he is the only one recently that actually kind of addressed, like, his mental health and how long, how he was, like, suppressing it and how long it took him to even talk about, like, his mother's death anywhere. And that what the two of them were living, like, during the funeral and just post that was, like, unacceptable. Sort of like how the paparazzi were just in their face and how abysmal that all is. And now finally, after the longest thing, let's go on to the motives. And what motivated this particular conspiracy, what fueled it, but what motivates in general conspiracies and how does it all fit together? The number one motive I put here as a primary one is that we need to attribute something to a logical explanation. And then I put, remember the COVID conspiracy theories? Because when people start losing it, obviously it's like chaotic, chaotic, chaotic. And then you kind of need to attribute it to something. You need to like explain it in a way that your brain can comprehend it. And when you were not given answers, when, you know, the queen doesn't come out publicly for about five days to give a statement... Nobody's telling you, like, well, what actually happened? And you can't physically see it because, again, there's no CCTV footage. You start, like, leaning towards the most probable conspiracy theories in your head. Conspiracy theories can also be fundamentally reassuring. And this is, again, why a lot of us are into true crime in the first place, because you comfort this ideological fantasy that proposes that someone somewhere is in control, no matter how malevolent they can be. Hence why people didn't mind so much blaming it on a dead man, because at least it can explain, okay, he was intoxicated, there are certain explanations to it towards it, and it gives them somebody to find culpable, some solution to strive to, to answer to all of their questions, and finally somebody to be held responsible for this accident. 
However, there are some negatives when it comes to just looking at conspiracy theories in general. And Lantian et al. in 2017 summarized the characteristics associated with a person likely to believe in conspiracy theories. And they said that they have personality traits such as openness to, openness to experience, distrust, and low agreeability. And this low agreeability in particular is interesting because it refers to the trait of agreeableness, which psychologists define define as uh, how much the individual is dependable, kind, and cooperative. So somebody who is low on that scale won't be dependable, kind, or cooperative. They concluded that people with strong conspiracy beliefs are more likely to overestimate the likelihood of co-occurring events, to attribute intentionality where it's unlikely to exist, and to have lower levels of analytic thinking. To which, yes, I can agree with that. If you give me, like, hey, COVID was uh, started because somebody was bitten by a bat and then you have nothing to support it. But that's exactly why I structured this episode the way that I structured it. That I have taken, like, Operation Paget and what they can answer to us, what they can't answer. And why not? Like, why is there a certain lack of CCTV footage? Why is there a certain lack of, like, evidence of certain things? So if you can actually give me a sequence of events, so I feel like it's all fine and dandy until you are a conspiracy theorist that can actually give me a sequence of events, can point out to the gaps, and then be like, this is why I believe in it. And then I'm like, okay, like, I understand. I don't think, like, there is something wrong with that. They further concluded that people who believe in conspiracy theories can feel special in a positive sense, because again, they may feel they are more informed than the others about different events in the room. And again, as somebody who Hermione granges a lot of situations in her life, if you have the knowledge, you give the knowledge, as long as it's not just like, oh, this is a random fact that I'm stating and I have nothing to support it. And this is interesting, and that's that people who feel powerless may also endorse conspiracy theories to help the individual avoid blame for the predicament. So this might have happened with Dodie's dad, for example, you know, in those first instances when he blamed on the family, but then later he was kind of satisfied with their findings. Putting those findings on conspiracy theories into context of Diana and, like, this particular case, I feel like we can get lost or fixated on one thing rather than, like, taking the facts or just focusing on the aftermath. There's a lot of things where the focus was 90% on one thing and, like, 10% on the other, like with the Fiat Uno, like with the CCTV footage, like with, well, is that security then to blame? Why the fuck is nobody monitoring that CCTV footage? So many things in, like, this investigation, so many things in this investigation where even, you know, the operation pageant or the inquests didn't fully 100% give the answers to. And honestly, I don't think that even if somebody was to do another inquest with, like, 831 pages, I don't think that the public would still be convinced because at this point I feel like everybody's leaning towards their own conspiracy theory and let me know which one you kind of buy or if any or are you satisfied with the findings from Operation Badger because you might be you might be think like all of this is bullshit or you might be satisfied because you feel like we should respect the wishes of the princes of Harry and William who decide to believe it and who decide to be satisfied by it but yeah I genuinely don't think like even if you would do like 10 inquests more that the public will be fully satisfied. I think the public will only turn again if, which definitely should be done, the Parisian 
investigators and all of that are to actually reopen it or to just publish all of their investigation at the time, translate it, publish it. And I mean, then again, something might be lost in translation. But I think that's the only way that the public might turn their eyes again to this and start maybe buying something more than the other or buying the findings that Operation Pedro concluded on. So, and that's the one thing we forget to focus on, on the aftermath or what else can be done. And that is the Fiatuno. Like, why have we never found, never allocated that driver? And with the current technology, why can't we maybe connect even the paint to the, the car? There are still documents that can be released, that can be translated, that can then serve to the public to make decisions on those decisions that have been made in the past. And as much as I think that you will never fully eliminate all of the conspiracy theories out there on the internet, if they had the elaborate account, if they had the French side of the investigation, that they can then make a fuller picture in their head of what exactly has happened. Which, yes, might serve to feed a full-on new conspiracy theory, but then it might serve to shut us all up forever. But whatever conspiracy theory you believe in, whatever you might think of Diana's death, we should go back to the day of the accident and who she was on that day when she died. At her wedding, Diana was the first royal bride to omit the word obey from her wedding vows. And if only everyone listened to her from the beginning, Diana's story would not have come as a surprise to anyone. <sighs> in the words of her brother, she was someone with natural nobility who was classless and who proved in the last year that she needed no royal title to continue to generate her particular brand of magic. Keep making the world a better place one motive at a time. And I should definitely keep doing that and also stop choosing the case as like the end of the month case. They destroy my soul and make me have 20 meltdowns when researching them. Yes, let's all follow in those footsteps.